Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, to you all hearts are open. To you every desire is known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we might perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the story goes that a certain pastor was desperately in need of a local church caretaker. So he put a help-wanted ad in the newspaper. The next day, when a young man walked into his office, the pastor just assumed that he had come to answer the ad. So the minister barked out, you need to be able to do lawn work, plumbing, snow removal, window washing, vehicle maintenance, heavy lifting, basic cleaning, and housekeeping. And you have to be on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The young man paused for a second and then concluded, well, my girlfriend wanted me to talk to you about us getting married here, but if it's going to be that much work, forget it. It often comes as a surprise to contemporary people that marriage is hard work. Not just bad marriages where people are pulling in opposite directions, but even good marriages where both partners are making a noble attempt at keeping covenant. Marriage is hard work. But that's not a bad thing. It's just a fact. When we last looked at this creation account in Genesis chapter 2, we saw that the divine inspiration for marriage actually comes in the context of work. Yahweh God formed the human from the dust of the ground, placed the human in the garden to work, to till the soil, to work the ground, and then Yahweh said, it is not good for the human to be alone. God created humans from the earth with a vocation to work in the world, to develop and fill creation on God's behalf, to take dominion of the created world as a special representative of the Creator. And so it's here, in the context of work, that God first acknowledges that something is lacking. It is not good, God says. And for people who already know, have already heard the first creation account, that announcement that it is not good should come as something of a surprise. All through chapter 1, God creates and declares everything to be good. And yet here in chapter 2, God creates and concludes it is not good. Now, he doesn't mean this in a moral sense. It isn't evil for the human to be alone. It's simply incomplete. Something important is lacking here. And that something seems to be discerned from within the divine counsel, from God's own self-reflection. Somewhere deep within the very nature of God, God determines that to be alone is inadequate. Karl Barth says that that's because God is not alone. He believed that as God creates 
He reflects inwardly on his own nature, on the relationship that he shares as Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's in this eternal relationship of equal persons, perfectly unified by love, communication, and covenant faithfulness, this becomes the model for the complete human. A God who exists in community creates a human to exist in community. And that seems parallel to the idea of chapter 1, where God talks to himself. Let us make the human in our image. And so God created them both male and female. I want you to note well that the differentiation between genders is not a difference of value in the created order. It's not creating some kind of pecking order in male and female relationships. This is a reflection of the divine. This is the image of God. John Donne wrote masterfully, No man is an island unto himself. Human beings were made for relationships of unity and diversity because this is the best way to reflect their maker. I don't want to suggest from this text that desperate loneliness is a proper motivation for marriage. Russian playwright Anton Chekhov said, if you're afraid of loneliness, don't marry. Because marriage doesn't make half people whole. It only brings together two needy people. A marriage that's healthy is only healthy when two whole people are joined together in covenant and unity of purpose. What's interesting here is that God is establishing the legitimacy of human relationships even when the human already has a perfect relationship with God. Almost every religion of the world has an ascetic tradition that suggests that the ideal form of spirituality is the hermit, the person who withdraws from creation, who separates themselves from pleasure, who removes themselves from human society and human contact, and lives alone with God. But this is not the ideal of biblical spirituality. Genesis reveals that this is not the normal state of human beings. In fact, it is spiritually inadequate to be alone. We are made in such a way that a relationship with God alone is not enough to make us complete. In fact, we're made in such a way that it's impossible to have a relationship with God without having a relationship with God's creation, his creatures, and other human beings. Pastors are prone to joke, I love the ministry, it's the people I can't stand. But the biblical story is about God calling a people, not just soul individuals, but the nation of Israel, the community of disciples, the church as the body of Christ. None of us have full access to God apart from his people. We can't know Christ and ignore his body. And our relationship with a God who exists in a triune relationship must always drive us back into community. And so when God determines that the human must not be alone, he also determines a solution. 
What is needed is a suitable helper, what the King James Version calls a helpmeet. Through, through long centuries of abuse, that word has taken on largely negative implications. For many, it tends to invoke the notion of some kind of lower creature, a hired hand, a servant. We, need, we get the impression that God creates the woman because Adam needs somebody to sweep the garden and pick up his dirty underwear, if he wore them. But that's, that's precisely not what is implied here. This suitable helper is not the housekeeper. It's not a servant or slave of any kind. This is not a charter for male domination over the female. The two words here are yezer kenegdo. The first word, yezer, implies someone who's able to assist and encourage, someone who is up for the task. This is one time in Scripture that the word is used to describe a human being. More often in the Old Testament, the word is used to speak of God, the God who is the help of his people. In Psalm 121, the psalmist asks, Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. So rather than being used to describe an inferior, this word stands as a powerful designation of the status of women, the value of women in the biblical story. And the second word, connecto, is, is, related word, is related to a word or a noun that means eminence. It suggests that the woman is created as a helper matching the eminence of a man, a full counterpart, someone who corresponds to him. And only a complete and totally equal person could fill this role of being a suitable helper. We need to remember in the context of this discussion of God's solution to the problem of being alone that half people do not make whole marriages. Marriage is intended to bring whole people together into community as a reflection of the image of God. And so we need others to stand apart from us as a counterpoint. It's never sufficient to have only one decision maker in any relationship. As imagers of God, this is work that has to be shared. Ruth Bell Graham once said, if two people agree on everything, one of them is unnecessary. If two people agree on everything, they double their chances of being wrong. God gives us a counterpart to balance us out, to create wholeness in this relationship. And as if to drive the point home completely, Yahweh God then forms the animals from the dust of the ground and brings them to the human to name. The work of the garden involves more than work with your hands. It involves work with the mind and with the tongue. Human beings are given this gift of intellect, this gift of signification of speech, and as the human signifies the creatures, declares their significance, as he calls out names to the animals, something becomes obvious. None of these answer back. None of these are a match, intellectually or verbally. 
There are lots of creatures who can serve the human, lots of inferior creatures who can help with the work, but there's no capable counterpart found among them. Even though humans can have rich, meaningful, stewardly relationships with animals, and we ought to, none of these creatures can match the eminence of the human. And so this, what seems like a, a temporary sidetrack of naming the animals, has the effect of heightening our suspense as we read the story. It makes it doubly clear that what we need is something only God can provide. Sometimes it's only after sorting out, sorting through all the options available to us that we simply are brought to a place where we have to trust that God is going to provide. And I think that theologically a delay in God's response can have the effect of producing a profound sense of gratitude and a full realization that this solution didn't come from me, but it came from God the provider. And so after the naming of the animals, God steps back into the story. We're told that he anesthetizes the human, and then he performs radical surgery. You've heard the old joke about Adam asking God for an absolutely perfect woman, one who obeyed his every command, who never contradicted him, who always looked beautiful. And God said, I can do that, but it'll cost you an arm and a leg. And Adam's reply is, okay, what can I get for a rib? Actually, I had to tell that joke, I'm sorry. But actually, the notion of the creation of the woman from the rib can be misleading because it can also be used to diminish the value of the creature we call woman. And despite this long tradition of translating this Hebrew word as rib, many scholars believe that a more appropriate translation would be side. God caused the human to sleep and took from the side, closing up the flesh, and from the side of the Adam, the human, God fashioned the woman. And we have to remember as well that in Genesis, derivation is not inferiority. Remember that the first human is taken from the ground, but the ground is not thereby superior to the human. Derivation speaks more to mutual interdependence. The earth depends upon the human to keep and develop it. The human depends upon the earth to provide food and shelter. Therefore, to be derived is to be mutually dependent. In 1 Corinthians, St. Paul makes the same point about men and women. He says, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man. And this is the interesting part, nor is man independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so also is every man born of woman. And so original creation in Paul's mind is counterbalanced by the cycle of birth. Childbirth means that every man who exists has come from woman. And thus male and female are seen as equal and yet mutually dependent upon one another. When the woman is taken from the side of the Adam, suddenly the chapter introduces us to a new distinction male and female. 
300 years ago, Matthew Henry suggested that the woman was made not out of the man's head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, near to his heart to be loved. And so when the man awakes, what you witness is a response of spontaneous joy. Immediately he recognizes his counterpart. He begins with a poem. And this is typical, isn't it? Men always start with poetry, flowers, but eventually they become Archie Bunker belching and yelling for a beer. The first part of this Hebrew poem is a little difficult. It's a little bit difficult to get the thrust of it in English, but it's something like, whoa, baby. <laughs> this is what I was waiting for. At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha, for she was taken from the man, Ish. These two belong together because they came from each other. And this sense of, of wonder and admiration is beautifully reflected in the 1549 Book of Common Prayer wedding ceremony. The words, I pledge to thee my troth, with my body I thee worship. In other words, I give myself to you fully. I swear that I will be faithful, and I will use my own body to affirm your value and worth as a person. That's a mouthful. But imagine the state of modern marriage if a couple could understand just that sentence. Genesis continues, this is why the man will leave father and mother and will cleave to his wife so that the two can be joined as one flesh. In most ancient cultures, and it was true of Hebrew culture as well, the woman is the one who left father and mother. But the writer of Genesis suggests equitability in that the man must also leave. I don't think that this suggests abandonment and isolation. Again, we live in community, and the community is larger than just husband and wife. What it suggests is that this creation of a new family unit has its own value and integrity. It's not sufficient, then, in the marriage union to continue to simply practice the patterns and habits of each individual's pasts and tastes. This creation of one flesh union from two people creates a third entity, something that transcends the individuality of each partner. It's always easy in the midst of a fight to retreat back to father and mother, or even to simply retreat back to the patterns and habits of our own family origins. But the hard work of keeping covenant requires that we leave those learned patterns behind and forge together something completely new. Something that does more than fulfill the desires of any one individual, but that nourishes and cherishes this union. 
comedian Rodney Dangerfield used to say of his marriage, we sleep in separate rooms, we have dinner apart, we take separate vacations. We're doing everything we can to keep this marriage together. The biblical notion that the man and woman cleave together implies something of being glued or cemented together. The Hebrew word is dabak. And it's usually used to speak of our covenant or God's covenant with us, such as in Deuteronomy 39.20. Love the Lord your God, obey his voice, and hold fast to him, for this is your life. The marriage union is a reflection of that covenant, and therefore it's intended to be permanent because it reflects the permanence of God's faithfulness to us. And to sustain this one flesh relationship, well, it requires a great deal of stick to but a great deal more grace. God's ideal, we all know it, and I have to say it, is that marriages last for life. And I don't say this to beat people up who've already experienced divorce or experienced marital difficulty. They have enough pain. But the purpose of the biblical ideal is to give us something to strive for, to give us a picture of what God desires for us. Increasingly, we live in, in a culture that has lost a full appreciation of the character of marriage. Just a few years back, a Time magazine article suggested more Gen Xers are the product of divorced parents than any previous generation leaving many of them emotionally conflicted about marriage and at a greater statistical risk of divorce themselves. Since many children of divorce have never seen a successful marriage up close, they're bereft of role models. As a result, they don't have a clue how to make their relationships work. It's been increasingly popular, become increasingly popular for people to talk about starter marriages with the full expectation that there will be more to come. A minister overheard a mother telling her daughter that she needed to ha at least have her first wedding in a church. After that, she was free to do what she wanted. Reno, Nevada is known as the wedding and divorce capital of the world. It's become common for jewelry stores in Reno to, have display, to display signs that read, wedding rings for rent. It's time for the church to recover a profoundly biblical vision for marriage as a covenant, not merely as a legal contract. That's why I think we need to be very careful about permitting the state to define marriage for us. Marriage for Christians is defined by God, not by the courts. Finally, under God's rule, the man and woman, we're told, stand naked and without shame. They are completely vulnerable. Their differences are utterly transparent. And yet the result is unashamed, fearless attraction to one another. This is a relationship created by God in which there are, is no anxiety about being spiritually, emotionally, 
and physically naked. There's no worry that my openness is going to be exploited, that my vulnerability is going to be mishandled or betrayed. There is no fear. God has given this gift of unabashed sexuality for our blessing, for the blessing of the community. Louis Mead says, to be wildly irrational, splendidly spontaneous, and beautifully sensuous is a gift from God. But of course we know that this is not paradise. The world we live in has been broken by sin and selfishness. Opposites, opposites attract, yes, but in our experience as fallen creatures, opposites also repel. And even though sex and marriage is a gift from God, don't, keep, don't kid yourself. Keeping covenant is increasingly hard work. There is no fairy tale ending when you meet the right person and then you simply live happily ever after. Instead, you need to continually seek the grace to be the right person, to make sacrificial and sometimes painful choices in order to keep this covenant sound. And that requires that our covenant be more than a legal contract more than just a personal choice to make us happy as individuals. Someone else needs to be part of the picture. Remember those billboards from a few years ago with the messages from God? One of them read, Loved the wedding. Invite me to the marriage. Signed, God. We will have to talk about the gift of singleness sometime, the vocation of singleness, but today's text serves to remind us of the gift, the covenant of marriage. One of the primary ways that God's image is stamped onto the world for the benefit of creation. And as the people of God, the scriptures compel us to think about a way that will be radically countercultural. And that's what I want to leave you with. The thought that marriage was given to us as humans, as imagers of God, not with the primary purpose of making us individually happy, but with the primary purpose of making us holy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.